0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and I've got a story here that I think you're going to like a lot. It started for me when I was just chilling one night recently, listening to classic vocal jazz and cooking dinner. I find that the two go together very well, for my peace of mind. And then the song Mona Lisa by Nat King Cole came on with those great lyrics, Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, men have named you. You're so like the lady with the mystic smile. Is it only because you're lonely they have blamed you for that Mona Lisa strangeness in your smile? Oh, I'd play it for you now if I could, but you're going to have to recall it on your own. It's a terrific haunting melody written by Ray Evans and Jay Livingston, who also gave us Silver Bells, Kay Sirrah," and Buttons and Bows, as well as the TV theme songs for Gunsmoke and Mr. Ed. They wrote Mona Lisa for the movie Captain Carey, USA starring Alan Ladd, and the song won an Oscar for best song. Captain Carey" was a World War II movie, and that song was sung by a blind accordion player in Italy who would sing that song whenever a German patrol was coming to warn the resistance. The song just had an Italian feel, they said, and no wonder, considering that the world's most famous piece of art, the Mona Lisa, was the masterpiece of Italian artist Leonardo da Vinci. But da Vinci wasn't treated well in his home country of Italy, and he absconded to France with three of his masterpieces, the Mona Lisa, St. John the Baptist, and Virgin and Child with St. Anne, all three of which were praised and revered by France's King Francis I, known to da Vinci as King Francois. In his will, da Vinci left his painting to his assistant, Salle, who sold them to a representative of King Francis I. The king displayed the paintings originally in the palace at Versailles, and they were later moved to the Louvre, where they reside today. As far as that smile goes, it looks very contented, very happy, a lot like a mother who is either carrying a child or recently had one, not trying to tempt a lover, as the song lyrics eventually suggest. But that's just my opinion. One of the great qualities of that painting is that everyone has a different opinion as to why she's smiling. You can talk all day long about the monumentality of the composition, its contribution to Italian Renaissance, the subtle modeling of forms, and the atmospheric illusion in the background but it's the smile on her face that sells it. Some say alluring. Some say aloof. It's a fine topic to discuss over a good wine. The painting enjoys a number of distinctions, among them the fact that it is among the first portraits to depict the sitter before an imaginary landscape, and da Vinci was among the first to use an aerial perspective. And it's not painted on a canvas. It's painted on a poplar blank. In the Renaissance, art reflected life, truth in life. The Mona Lisa brings nature and countryside and places it next to life, a living person, and that life is beautiful and serene. But better yet, she is a mystery, a living enigma, and therein lies the power of the painting. Today the Mona Lisa is the best known, the most visited, the most written about, the most sung about, and the most parodied work of art in the world. It is believed that the woman in the painting is the Italian noblewoman Lisa Giardini, the wife of Francesco del Giocondo. It was painted between 1503 and 1506. However, it's said that da Vinci may have been working on it on and off for years, finally finishing it as late as 1517. Its value today, priceless. In her time, Mona Lisa has brightened up the residences of France's King Francois I, Napoleon, and King Louis XIV and been sought after by many others. But it didn't always enjoy the status of being the most known and valuable piece of art in the world. It was only after the Mona Lisa was stolen from the Louvre that this happened. And we'll return with the rest of that story right after this sponsor message. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Da Vinci's assistant Salai called it La Gioconda, after the name of the family into which Lisa was married. It was Renaissance art historian Giorgio Vasari who was able to find the model's name. Lisa del Giocondo was a member of the Giardini family of Florence and Tuscany, who was able to find the models and the wife, as mentioned, of wealthy Florentine silk merchant Francesco del Giocondo. The painting is thought to be commissioned for their new home and to celebrate the birth of their second son, Andrea. And there were more than one copies made, and history isn't too sharp on saying which is which. The Louvre claims to have the original, and most art scholars agree. But if the painting was commissioned originally by the giocondo slash family to be hung in their home, I can't see da Vinci entering the home for constant retouching of the painting, which he did, from 1503 to 1517, during which time he removed the eyelashes, changed the direction the eyes were looking, removed a hairpiece, and worked on the landscape. Maybe the Giocondo family received copy one. It's still a mystery. Copy two was bequeathed to da Vinci's assistant Salai, who sold it to King Francois. That was kept at the Palace of Fontainebleau until Louis XIV moved it to the Palace of Versailles. After the French Revolution, it was moved to the Louvre. By 1911, the Mona Lisa really wasn't known by the general public, but it was a big deal inside the art world. The painter Raphael, who had visited da Vinci's studio a number of times, used elements of the Mona Lisa's composition and format in some of his works, including Young Woman with a Unicorn and Portrait of maddalena Doni in 1506. Other painters followed, and within the art world, during the Renaissance, the Mona Lisa became the go-to example of a Renaissance portrait to emulate. But there was one member of the general public, an Italian named Pietro Perugia, who really did appreciate the Mona Lisa and wanted her for his own apartment. When the Louvre closed the evening of Sunday, August twentieth, nineteen 1911, three men remained inside, hiding in an art supply closet. Early in the morning of the 22nd, before the museum opened, they slipped out of the closet, lifted the 200-pound glass case containing the framed painting off the wall, removed the painting from the case, covered it with a blanket, and hot-footed it to the Caille d'Orsay station, boarding the 747 AM Express to the outskirts of Paris. It wasn't until 28 hours later that someone noticed that there were four bare hooks on the wall where the painting and glass case should have been hanging. The guy who noticed that wasn't a security guard. He was a still-life artist named Louis Baroud. He was upset because the Mona Lisa wasn't there, so he complained to the head of the museum. They told him that it was probably on the roof where they were photographing individual pieces in real light, as the cameras of the day weren't too good yet with inside light. The painter was the pushy type, and these guys were messing up his day so he convinced the guard to go up and check to see when they would be done with the Mona Lisa. The guard returned sometime later with the news that the photographers didn't have it. This gives you a picture of what security was like at the Louvre in 1911. Newspapers all over the world began running headlines about the Mona Lisa, the missing painting at the Louvre, causing the Louvre, understandably, much embarrassment, and elevating the public's knowledge of the Mona Lisa to star status. Of course, France took it personally and put 60 detectives on find-the-missing-art status, while at the same time pointing fingers at everyone whom they thought might have a hand in the job. Their first target was American millionaires who were collecting valuable art and buying up France's legacy in the process, or so they said. Of course, somebody in France was making millions selling it, so why not go after the sellers? Maybe J.P. Morgan was the culprit. Then their focus latched onto French poet Guillaume Apollinaire, who came under suspicion and was arrested and imprisoned. Apollinaire fingered his close friend Pablo Picasso, who was brought in for questioning. Both were later exonerated, but for a while it was nip and tuck. And then tensions were rising on the German border in 1911. Maybe the Kaiser was behind it. The Louvre was shut down for a week, and when it reopened, thousands of people flocked in to see the empty spot that had become the mark of shame for Parisians and the French people. Meanwhile, the three Italians who had absconded with the Mona Lisa were cooling it in Paris. All three were handymen. Two of them were brothers Vincenzo and Michele Lantellati. The third, and the ringleader, was Vincenzo Perugia. He had actually worked for the Louvre and had installed a glass case that protected that priceless work of art. Those close to the case believed that Perugia was motivated to do it by an associate who owned copies of the original, knowing that if the Mona Lisa was stolen, the value of those copies would go up immensely. Perouche's original plan was to sell the painting, figuring it would bring him at least a modest amount. The Mona Lisa wasn't that well-known to the public at that time, so he figured he could move it to someone out there quietly without much of a fuss. But he figured wrong. When the theft hit the newspapers, the Mona Lisa became known worldwide overnight. France was rocked. The art world was in dismay. The gendarmes and detectives were hot on the trail. And the Mona Lisa was now too well-known and too hot to hawk so Perugia was stuck with it. Then the newspaper started offering rewards, but Perugia knew that if he brought it in, he would be arrested, so he stashed it in the false bottom of a trunk that he kept in his Paris boarding house. Now one would think that with all those Inspector Clouseaux running about Paris, one would have thought to investigate all of the people who had access to the Louvre, employees, vendors, and workmen, especially workmen who installed glass security boxes for art pieces. But as the months and years rolled by, those adding up to two years and four months, Perugia got greedy and tried to sell the Mona Lisa to an art dealer in Florence named Giovanni Poggi, the director of the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. The dealer got suspicious and called in the head of an Italian art gallery to come and take a look at the painting. A stamp on the back confirmed it as authentic. The dealer told Perugia, OK, leave it with us, and we'll see that you get your reward. And Perugia left, heading home. Not long after that, he got his reward. The police were at his door, and they put him in cuffs and led him down to the station. Meanwhile, the Uffizi Gallery, not being one to ignore the chance to take some profits, put the Mona Lisa on display for two weeks before finally returning it to the Louvre on the 4th of January, 1914. Vincenzo Perugia had had two years to think of what he would do if he was caught. He thought of all the stories he could give the police, and finally came up with the best one. He was Italian. Da Vinci was Italian. The Mona Lisa should be in Italy. But there it was, in a French museum. That was monstrous. It was a crime, maybe the crime of the ages, for France to steal from Italy. Vincenzo's pride in his home country burst forth during his trial, and he gave an emotional outburst of patriotism, swearing that he acted on behalf of his homeland. His ruse worked. He got six months and the love of his countrymen for his patriotism. He never had to explain why he was trying to sell it, and not return it to Italy. About a year after that, the Saturday Evening Post journalist Carl Decker wrote that he had met an alleged accomplice named Eduardo de Valfierno, who claimed to have masterminded the theft. This was the friend of Perugio who we mentioned earlier. Art forger Yves Choudron was to have created six copies of the painting to sell in the U.S. while concealing the location of the original. Whether or not that did work out, we don't know. During World War II, the Mona Lisa was removed from the Louvre and taken first to the Chateau d'Ambrois, then to the Lac Abbey and Chateau de Chambord, then finally to the Ingress Museum in Montauban, in order to escape being grabbed by the Nazis, who were stealing hundreds of millions of dollars worth of paintings and valuables. Much of that was discovered and returned by the group known as the Monuments Men, but thousands of artifacts, including valuable art pieces, have never been found. On December 30, 1956, Bolivian Ugo Uganza Villegas threw a rock at the Mona Lisa while it was on display at the Louvre. He did so with such force that it shattered the glass case and dislodged a speck of pigment near near Mona Lisa's left elbow. One year previously to that, another man used a glass cutter in an attempt to steal the painting, which he said he had fallen in love with. Bulletproof glass now protects the Mona Lisa from nutballs, and she's connected to a security system which makes theft impossible. But the crazies still come. In April of 1974, while the painting was on display at the Tokyo National Museum, a woman sprayed it with red paint as a protest against that museum for not giving access to disabled people. In August of 2009, a Russian woman, upset over being denied French citizenship, threw a ceramic teacup purchased in the gift shop at the Louvre, at the Mona Lisa. Her teacup shattered against the glassed enclosure. I'm hoping the Mona Lisa gave her a wink and a Bronx salute. "'If a work of art truly has spirit, as some say, "'you can bet she wanted to. "'And if you look closely at her right hand, "'and the light and shadow is just right, "'you can kind of see just how easy it would be.'" The Mona Lisa's smile drove at least one man to suicide, the French artist Luc Mespero. He was driven to destruction by the mute whispers of Mona Lisa's engrossingly gladsome lips. In his suicide note he wrote, "'For years I have grappled desperately with her smile,' just before leaping to his death from his Paris hotel room. In New York City, 1.7 million people came to see her in late 1962 and early 1963, when she was shipped over on the SS France, and it was in New York that Mona Lisa got her first shower. First Lady Jackie Kennedy had asked President de Gaulle if the painting could make a visit to the U.S., and de Gaulle agreed. While on exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Mona Lisa was drenched in water when a faulty sprinkler was activated. But the glass case was waterproof, so no damage was done. So many people come to the Louvre now to see the Mona Lisa that they've had to create a roped-off waiting line just for a look, and then you are limited to 30 seconds. Move along now. You've seen enough. But be sure to visit the gift shop. The museum really doesn't like to share it because every time it's moved, it requires a huge team to make sure that the Mona Lisa doesn't experience anything that could hasten the deterioration of its 500-year-old frame and poplar panel which, over the years, has been given protective braces by its keepers. Humidity is an enemy as well, and she's kept under strict climate-controlled conditions in her bulletproof glass case. She is further protected by a strategically placed bed of silica gel, treated to prove 55% relative humidity. She's even been treated for insects. In 1977, an insect infestation was discovered on some cross pieces that that had been added to prevent warping. This was treated with carbon tetrachloride, Then, and then again for good measure in 1984. In 2020, the Louvre held a special anniversary for the master's death and gathered all the da Vinci paintings in a special exhibit for crowds to see. All but one, that is. That one being the Mona Lisa. She wasn't included because she was in such great demand among visitors to the museum, and she remained on display in the gallery. It's kind of a shame. She rests behind a huge pane of bulletproof glass and is separated further by a wooden rail to keep people at their distance. You can't help but wonder how good she would look if you could stand and look at the painting from a few feet away. She's called a destination painting, meaning that people come from all over the world just to see her. And millions do come to see her. In 2014, 9.3 million people, to be exact, in that year, visited the Louvre. Past director Henri Loyette reckoned that 80% of the people came just to see her. By the way, she has her own mailbox at the Louvre if you want to send a note or flowers. That's your story, and the song continues. Do you smile to tempt a lover, Mona Lisa, or is this your way to hide a broken heart? Many dreams have been brought to your doorstep. They just lie there, and they die there. Are you warm? Are you real, Mona Lisa, or just a cold and lonely, lovely work of art? Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa. We've had some great reviews lately, and you know we appreciate reviews very much here. They help new listeners find us. This first one from M. Surratt, five stars. Thank you for your well-told histories. Your research is impressive. Your storytelling style is inviting. I, too, want to commend Bob Hoover to you. His energy management routine in an aero commander was truly a jaw-dropping experience. He was an American hero flying in a straw hat and cowboy boots. Well done, sir. Please continue. Down from Dunkirk at Apple Podcast U.S. And I wanted to let all of you Bob Hoover fans know, and I'm working on reading it right now. It looks pretty good. So it looks like we'll be doing that episode in the near future. The next one, Hello from Romania, 5 stars. Love it. I'm excited every time you post a new podcast. Down from Joel Caleb, Apple Podcast Romania. And this one, Fantastic Podcast, 5 stars. I really like the history here. Have you ever considered doing a show on Bob Hoover? Jimmy Doolittle called him the greatest stick and rudder pilot who ever lived. In World War II, he escaped from a German POW camp, then stole a German plane and escaped to Holland. Down from Theo Finn, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. Love this podcast. I absolutely love the variety offered in this podcast. I listen everywhere, in the car, while doing yard work, while cycling. As a lover of history, I've discovered a few books that I wouldn't have otherwise thought to read. I really enjoy learning more about the various topics. John really digs deep into the subjects. You get far more in-depth information than you do from most individual sources. John, keep up the good work. Ian. Down from PMC 2006, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, a good story is hard to find. Five stars. Thanks for the great storytelling. I recommend you to many. That one from Janica3, loves, via Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one never get weary listening. 5 stars. I'm a huge 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 fan of all your podcasts. Great listens for when working, playing, driving or resting. They're all my favorites. Awesome work. Please don't stop. Down from social media boss lady apple podcast US. And this one VR, 5 stars. Big fan of your stories, sir. I now look forward to the sometimes menial tasks at work so I can get lost in some history. Thank you. Down from eye cutter apple podcast US. And this one, Bigfoot, five stars. John, great balanced review of Bigfoot data and myths. Question. Much of the data is still standing, hints that Bigfoot and cousins may be remnant populations of archaic primates. However, the archaeological press has started hinting at an alternative. Could these creatures be remnant hominids? Could they be Denisovans? It seems Denisovans were large, red-haired, and possibly loners. They may have been autistic savants, potentially responsible for the development of medicine, music, and other profound ideas. Reference, DNA research of Savant Pebo et al. If so, we may observe in a society based on isolation rather than on our model that evolved on cooperation. If so, this intelligence might account for lack of residual artifacts, dead bodies, nocturnal movements, and the like. Might you consider a show to investigate the likelihood of Denisovans as Bigfoot? Thanks, from Muskalunge Apple Podcast, U.S. On your subject of the Denisovans, since 1980 when a jaw portion was found by a monk in a cave in Tibet, some scientists have been positing the theory of a vanished species of Neanderthal, and they gave them the name Denisovan after a cage in Russia in which some finger bones, roughly matching the time period of that jaw, were found. It's all theory, and right now I don't know if we have enough to justify an episode on it. And a lot of questions still exist regarding Bigfoot and all the Bigfoot versions that people, have, that people have told us about. I'm staying up with Bigfoot News, and if anything big does happen, we will put out an episode. Thanks for your review, and thanks for being a, go- and thanks for being a good listener. We also appreciate our supporters at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. And our number of supporters is growing every month. For about the price of a cup of blended coffee, you can help 1001 Stories Network grow to 2001 Stories Network time job for me researching and bringing these stories out to you it's a labor of love for me i will agree but your donations obviously help greatly to defray the time and expenses that are incurred here and we appreciate our patrons and our listeners very 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 much the greatest thing you can do to help our shows go forward is to talk about us if you hear an episode you like share it with a friend tell them where you found it we actually have eight podcasts out there right now and there's a wealth of stories and history out there for you to enjoy So please do share our show with friends and family. We appreciate that, and that's what helps us grow as well. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new episode. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.